Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, a little unsettled getting in here. Tyrese Halliburton with a between the legs Ali oop to Paolo Bancaro, right as I was getting ready to start here. And uh, yeah, maybe wasn't in my seat when things got going here. Uh, maybe you were out of your seat in the 10th inning of last night's Toronto Blue Jays game. You were probably frustrated that it got to a 10th inning, but the Jays pull it out. They beat the Oakland Athletics 6-5 to five in 10 innings. In doing so, they moved back within half a game of the American League wildcard. Now, uh, we'll set that up a little bit for you in a moment here, but if you missed the game, if you want to relive it, uh, it was kind of par for the course until the 10th inning with how things have gone for the Blue Jays. And really, if you look at lately, it was par for the course in that uh, they came away with a win that wasn't uh, entirely encouraging and the encouraging parts were the parts that yes you appreciate and it's a long season and you got to get contributions from all over the place but uh yeah you'd maybe prefer to not be leaning so heavily on a trio of guys just called up from triple a anyway here's how this one went down uh jose Barrios very very good through five innings gives up a pair of solo or through four innings rather gives up a pair of solo shots in the fifth and the sixth Comes out after six, only through 84 pitches. We'll see what Kevin Barker thinks about that decision to not let Barrios go back out there. Uh, some loud contact mixed in around seven strikeouts to just one walk, pitch efficient, things like that. Um, not too, too bad there. And at that point, he comes out of the game with a three to two lead. Uh, the Jays had loaded the bases up in the fifth with nobody out after getting nothing off of Luis Medina for the first four innings. Uh, so they load him up. Nobody out. Kevin Kiermaier grounds into a double play to score the game's opening run, which uh, Kevin Kiermaier has not been guilty of this a lot. But if you were looking for a snapshot of what this team's offense has felt like at times, uh, bases loaded, nobody out, and you ground into a double play to score the game's opening run in the fifth inning against a last place team uh, that it felt a little on the nose. Jays managed to get two more there. George Springer hits an RBI double. Kevin Biggio scores him with a single. So not too bad. Jays lead 3-2 when Barrios comes out. Jimmy Garcia gives up uh, the third Oakland solo home run of the game to Diaz. And you're thinking, okay, well, that's not fortunate, but this is an Oakland Athletics bullpen. Jays should be able to uh, get to it here. Seven, sixth and seventh, they, they do nothing. Eighth comes around. They put two men on. Springer and Vlad are at first and second with only one out. Spencer Horwitz rips a line out that was nearly a double play. Um so, you know, bad outcome, but well-hit ball. Uh, Whit Merrifield strikes out. So they miss an opportunity there. Ninth inning rolls around. Jays opt to pinch at David Schneider for Ernie Clement with two outs and nobody on. Now, that's a tough spot to put anyone in, especially a rookie who's didn't start despite being the hottest hitter on the team. Um, you know, I think we can probably figure out why just as they try to spread plate appearances around right now. Uh, there are lefty starters for Oakland today and tomorrow. So you're looking at two obvious Schneider starts where maybe, you know, Horwitz and Biggio don't get in the games as smoothly. Uh, you you probably want to keep Kiermaier and Varsho in the outfield if you can, given how much space there is to cover in Oakland. Uh, anyway, David Schneider's put in a position where... Yes, you could start an inning uh, by getting a hit or a walk or something like that, but it really did feel like a go hit us a clutch home run spot. Uh, he does not. So we had two extras. It was uh, Jay Jackson and Genesis Cabrera and then Jordan Romano in the ninth to uh, to help get us there and keep things close. There was a bit of a scare in the ninth. Genesis Cabrera allowed a single. Jordan Romano came in. Uh, Esturi Ruiz had pinch ran, stole a couple bases, uh, but the Jays managed to get out of it. Tenth inning rolls around. Zombie runner on second. 
It's Mason McCoy. Looks looks fast. No, I'm not mentioning for for any kind of reason about last week at all. But Mason McCoy looks like a decent base runner. Uh, Santiago Espinal pinch hits come through with a big double. He has not seen a ton of everyday play lately, but in the time he's gotten, uh, the bat has been better of late. Not, you know, the the bar is fairly low at this point for Espinal, given the way the season's gone, but he he's hit a little better of late. He comes through with a big RBI double there. Cabin Biggio brings him in. Um, Spencer Horwitz then hits what should have been a two-run double. The ball gets stuck underneath the wall, so Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who would have been on first, has to go back to third base. That almost ends up mattering. Uh, so the Jays end up with three in that inning. They also had, by the way, the base is loaded still with only one out, uh, but Alejandro Kirk popped out and, and then Dalton Varsho flew out. So, um, you know, opportunity to add even more there. You're probably thinking you don't need it because it's Oakland and you got a three run lead while well, Jordan Ronald gives up a, a home run uh, to Butler instantly his second of the game, uh, a two run shot from there. Uh, Romano would be fine. The Jays would get out of it, hang on to the win. So, a little bit of up and down in there. Jay's executing at times with runners on base, at times leaving some stuff on the table uh, there. By the way, this stat will come up a couple times in the next couple of days, I'm sure. And some of it is definitely due to the change in quality of pitching you've been facing. But there's a lot of randomness on the positive side, too. Jay's hitting 337 with runners in scoring position uh, over the last month and change. Regression to the mean does not work that you overperform to correct things. That is called the gamblish fallacy. You should not expect that. But uh, yeah, it's nice to see them coming through with a little bit more regularity there, even if it doesn't always feel that way, like yesterday, for example. Uh, so with the win, Jays moved to back within half a game of the final wildcard spot. Why they're able to do that, Texas and Houston are against each other for a three set here. So the Jays have a scenario here where, I mean, worst case scenario, if they win the next two games, they'd be half a game out. And if Texas and Houston split them or Houston is able to sweep Texas, uh, Jays could be in the driver's seat. They're heading into a weekend where the Jays will play Kansas City, who are now last in all of Major League Baseball, and Texas will play this Oakland team. So uh, could be a weekend where you really need to sweep the hold serve. And then, of course, next week, a four-game set against Texas here at Rogers Center in Toronto Monday through Thursday. Very, very big series shaping up as the biggest one of the season. We'll, of course, look ahead to that series when it comes. Uh, right now, let's keep our eye on this Oakland series a little bit on the Colorado series that was. We're joined now by Kevin Barker of Blair and Barker of Jay's Talk Postgame. Kevin, good morning. How was your long weekend? Yeah, it's good. How how you guys doing? Uh, we're good, man. We're, we're, we're good here. A little better than if they hadn't come uh, come away with that win last night. Uh, what do you make of, you know, uh, needing extra innings and it's still being close in the 10th against a team like Oakland? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Well, you, you know, I, I think you're starting to see the last couple of turns uh, a pitching staff that's grinding. Like you, you can tell, you know, you're you're trying to force break. You're trying to force good misses. Uh, you're trying to force velocity. You see a lot of uh, head scratching, trying to figure out mechanics and better finishes. And, you know, when you start to see two seamers and, and four seamers doing things that they normally don't do when it comes to location and how much their misses are, you know, you saw it from, you've seen it from Bassett, you've seen it from Barrios, you saw it from Gosman. You know, the good finishes that'll tell you mechanically, just physically, mentally, it's a grind for him. You see a manager trying to be perfect. He, he's trying to make all the per- right moves at the right time. Yeah, it's almost impossible this time of the year especially when you don't have your best player not in the game and and 
you know, it's just sometimes it's a it's a it's a thing that you're you're sort of in a no win situation. And the swing decisions, I, I I heard you sort of breaking down things there. The swing decisions, let's quite frankly say it the way it is, they're atrocious. <laughs> like it, the, there's no other way to say it. Like it's they're the that's the reason why they're not blowing these bad teams out. It's got nothing to do with defense and base running and you know dudes that think they're hitting homers and and turn doubles into singles like they're that's not the reason. The, the reason is is the, the bats like Alejandro Kirk coming up with bases loaded and one out and swinging an 0-0 slider on the black away. That's the reason why they're not blowing these bad teams out. And whatever the conversations like, whoever's determining on what these guys are looking for, and you can tell. Some of these guys in big situations are sitting on pitches. You, you can tell why they're swinging at certain pitches, and maybe it's just the fact of they're not good enough to separate. Okay, if I'm sitting spin, I have to sit spin in my spot. If I don't want the ball away, just because I'm sitting spin, I'm not going to swing at it. And that, for me, is the one big thing here of until they sort of, I think, figure out ways to – have better swing decisions. Like the talent's there. Like, they're oozing talent. They got enough of that. Even with Bo not in the lineup and, you know, maybe Matt Chapman not being in the lineup for a little while sort of helped when it comes to runners and scoring positions. He had a bad year when it comes to that, right? He's, he's been a little better before he got hurt there, but he's had a really bad year when it comes to, you know, where they're trying to put him away from guys <laughs> in scoring position. It's just a fact. It's the way it is. Maybe that's helped a little where they can just put certain guys in there that are hungry that are going to have these at bats, but I don't know about you. Whenever you watch the big at bats, big moments, right? You're getting a hitter's count like a three one. So, bar show yesterday, two hitters counts. First at bat, I think it was maybe it's last at bat where gets in three one counts. He swings at fastballs, not even close. Like that'll tell you right there all you need to know. When you're looking and sitting a certain pitch, you still can't forget it's got to be a strike, it's got to be a strike in your zone because you're in the driver's seat and that for me if you're a if you're a baseball fan if you're a blue jay fan that's got to be frustrating like that it is for me to watch and because i know these guys are better like it's it just comes down to don't let the moment get too big and i think sometimes even though against you're doing against double a team let's say it like the the oakland a's the colorado rockies and, and the kansas city royals they're borderline double a teams and you should be having better at-bats, and you should be having better separation when it comes to the runs on the score scoreboard than you are right now, and it comes down to me, the, the swing decisions. Yeah, and, you, you know, a guy like Luis Medina who has some decent stuff, but he's also got a five-and-a-half ERA, and it, it takes you five innings to get to him. And the swing decisions thing, you know, I know sometimes people think of it as, well, it's just swinging at pitches outside of the zone. It's also, like you said with Varsha, making sure what you do swing at in the zone is something you can do some damage with, uh, not just something that's, you know, swinging for the sake of it, it being in the zone or it being a fastball. Kevin, I wonder what you make of the fact that they've had a couple guys come up from AAA of late and be able to not only contribute, but get praise for the quality of that bats they're having. And they're not perfect. They're, they're young kids fresh up from AAA, but Spencer Horwitz has a very big weekend for them and a, and a big moment in the 10th last night. Davis Schneider's been, you know, a, a huge boost to the lineup. Even Ernie Clement has come up and given them some decent at-bats. Obviously, the bar's a little lower for those guys, but what do you make of the fact that we're seeing, you know, maybe better swing decisions or, or better plans of attack from a trio of guys who aren't supposed to be being leaned on like this? 
Yeah, look, it's. I was one of these guys when I played. I, mm. I, I think sometimes when you're facing uh, lesser competition, your talents tend to come out front than they would if you're facing the elite competition. And and I think that's where sort of we'll start to find out. You know, if Bo doesn't come back sooner than we think he'll come back. If Matt Chapman, it looked like I was I was noticing yesterday, you couldn't see when he was holding the baseball. There was no thing on his finger, which is a big deal. I would assume, you know, that will help out with the throwing and the hitting and hope. Hopefully Matt Chapman will be back centered than later. So, yeah, I don't look. I I don't, I don't know if you should get too excited about mm-hmm. it. I think Spencer Horowitz because he has a, a quick stroke. Uh, he has a a decent plan of what he's trying to do. I did say after the game yesterday, when's the last time you saw a left-handed hitter for the Blue Jays take a two-zero fastball middle away, backspin a line drive to left center field? I, I I don't know about you. I can't remember the last time somebody did that. And that will tell you, you know, that he has a decent idea of what he's trying to do. He's got good length to his swing. You know, he's got a quick enough, short enough stroke that he can get barrel to ball, backspin that thing, and it go where he wants it to go. So hit it where it's pitched is kind of a funny thing, right? It's, you know, there's a little something to that. So, yeah, I think these are these are role players that, you know, you can ask to step in and help out when your main guys are not there. It will be interesting if the main guys don't come back sooner than later, what it will look like, right? Because they're going to sooner than later start facing some better pitching, some better defenses, uh, you know, some guys that know how to attack, some some weaknesses. The Spencer Horowitz have a weakness, huh? you know, maybe it's up and in because of the way he strides, you know, he sort of cuts himself off. It's but he does have bat-to-ball skills. Ernie Clement, right, he's a sort of a line-drive ground ball guy. He's a contact guy. He's balled into that. He's not trying to overswing. If he runs into one, he runs into one. Davis Snyder, you know, he's still got some holes. I like what we're seeing, right? It's sort of that hungry effect of I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to be a big leaguer. Tired of riding buses. Mm. It stinks. I don't want any more part of that. I, that, for me, is the fun part of this because the grind of watching everyday guys sometimes, you don't see the quick adjustments. Blake, you know, why hasn't Vladdy made quicker quicker adjustments, huh? Why hasn't uh, Matt Chapman, when he was healthy, made quicker adjustments? Eh. Why why hasn't Dalton Varsho made a quicker adjustment? Now, we know he's made some adjustments with his lower half. Why, why haven't they been quicker? I think that's the difference between those guys and these guys. You know, you see David Schneider. I don't like the fastball up. Going to go in a cage, crank that iron mic up to 150 <laughs> miles an hour, try and figure out how to get the head out and pull some of those. I have to do it quicker because if I don't, I'll be a minor leaguer. That, that I think, is refreshing to watch if you're a fan and if you're a guy like me who watches this team the way I watch them to see these guys go out and actually want to make adjustments quicker not because they want to because they have to yeah I think that's that's well said and it's an interesting headspace to try to put yourself in when yeah so much of our conversation the Jays had almost no roster changes other than that 26 man for most of the season we're talking about the same guys and the same issues over and over it's nice to get you know a a fresh problem set and see these guys kind of making those shifts Kevin when it comes to Spencer Horwitz um, you know some of this might depend on if Brandon Belt's available and things like that but he's been as good as he has he's giving you the quality of bats you're facing a pair of lefties here today and tomorrow do you you try to work him in somewhere or are you not too worried about the like are, are you worried about the lefty lefty with him or are you just trying to put the best nine out there how do you handle Horwitz with a, a couple lefties here in a row 
Well, I would think David Schneider, I hope, mm-hmm. hopefully, fingers crossed, will be playing. I mean, he, yeah. he's the one guy, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, the, the, the smart people in the khakis are, are sitting around sometimes overthinking it. That, that, that is where, you know, you're trying to, it's like yesterday. You know, you got a righty on the mound. You got a dude sitting 360 over his last seven games with a couple of homers and too many other people hitting 360. <laughs> like you play the, you play the hot hand. You, you run prevention is, is a beautiful thing. But when you got a dude sitting 360, you know, you, you can't have all three lefties in her, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the it's the Kiermaier, the Varsho, and the and the Biggio. I mean, if you want to get two of the three in there, okay, fine. But you got to get the dude hitting three sixty in there. So I'd probably start there. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't assume that they're going to force the issue. You know, it's just odd that Vladdy, I guess, is is not playing first, and maybe he can play first, and and that will sort of fill in the blanks of of where certain guys are going to play and how you use your bench and and you know Spencer Horowitz does have a quick stroke, which would give you the benefit if you're John Snyder of, okay, playing a matchup that the dude's left-handed, that's the starter. Maybe I can bring Spencer in and say the fifth inning where that righty comes in, throwing hard, guy on second base. Maybe I can make contact and I can think left center and I can hit a line drive and I can help a team out that way. So, yeah, I would – I'm probably not going to think he's starting – unless they have to start him because of whatever issues that other starters are having. But he's a nice little piece to have coming off a bench because of the quick stroke, and and most of the time he doesn't chase. So that's – I think right now, I don't know about you, but right now I think their bench is a little bit better. Like it's Mm -hmm. hungry. Uh, it's shorter, like their swings. Clement's got a short swing. Uh, Schneider is compact. Swing's not real short, but it's compact. It gets the velocity. Uh, Horowitz, compact. Like, they got some dudes who can get velocity and, and use the entire field, which is not what they've always had all season. So that's a nice little piece that John can go to and, and – the more options you have, the the less chance you got of screwing it up. <laughs> I think that that gets back to your manager this time of the year, always trying to be perfect. Humans are not perfect, right? So they're going to mess up. But the more options you have, the more talent you have sitting over there, the less chance you got of screwing it up. And I think now because of those three guys, when one's not playing or the couple's not playing, at least they have better options to go to. Yeah, I think that's a great point about Horwitz's value off the bench once a, a reliever comes in and it's not, you know, it's not like, oh, Oakland's bringing in uh, a handful of Andrew Millers from the left side out of the bullpen. So you can, uh, you can pick your matchup there. And Horwitz is a guy who, you know, had noticeable platoon splits in the minor leagues this season, about 115 points of batting average difference there. So, so nice to get him in a, in a spot against the righty Uh, in terms of Davis Schneider, not playing yesterday, Kevin, I I know how you feel about that overall, him not starting, given how hot he was the situation that he was used in two out, nobody on in the ninth. Now there weren't, I know in this case, if you save them, you know, maybe a situation doesn't come up where you get to use them. Maybe there was a situation earlier on. What did you what did you think of that decision? Two outs, nobody on to to use the guy in that spot. Obviously, you can build a beginning there, but it kind of felt like, a hey, can you go hit us another clutch homer? Yeah, well, look, you had a, you had a, a chance in the in the fifth inning with with Biggio coming up. I think it was the fifth inning where he's facing the left inning and he gets the the sing, the Arbaugh single when he's when he you know that's a little bit of luck. You got the tenth inning there if you saved him, where you know Cavan had the the RBI single against the lefty. You could have used him there. Yeah, I have no idea why I used him with two outs, nobody on. I, I, again, this gets back to a manager trying to be perfect. I got nothing against John, right? This is you know you got what you got when you're not best your best player is not on your team right now because of injury you're trying to make the perfect move all the time and 
you know, sometimes it just, <laughs> you, you just don't. And for me, I just don't understand. I, first of all, I have no idea why Davis wasn't playing. <laughs> Davis may not be good next week. And next week, you don't have to play him. But this week, he's sitting 360. Like, I, that, <laughs> that, for me, that for me is as simple as it has to be. Sometimes you just do what you see and don't overthink it. And then when you got a bunch of smart people and John and maybe, you know, the strategist and the hitting coach and everybody's got their two cents and you're trying to play matchups and you're, you're trying to get the best defense on the field. And oh, by the way, you forget that you're not scoring a ton of runs and you're, you're, Swing decisions aren't great, but you got a guy sitting over there who's sitting 360. And then, oh, by the way, you throw it up on the pregame show that a 24-year-old needs rest. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, sometimes you just don't have any any way to explain it. And I think this is one of those times where you don't want to get too ahead of yourself because they did win, and what they put on the field helped do that. But for me, sometimes, man, you way overthink it. Uh, Caleb Joseph said it, I think, the best way. I don't know if he said it on the air, but he said it to me. If you're trying to play defensive matchups against the A's, <laughs> something's wrong. So that's a great point. Yeah, and look, I know that that park's big and there's a lot of ground to cover out there. But, yeah, that's uh, that does seem to be like you're strategizing for a team that is better than the one you're actually playing against. Uh, Kevin, I, I don't want to focus on the negative too much after, after a good win, but there was something you said early when you first came on with us that I wanted to circle back to. And you had mentioned, you know, some of the pitchers showing a little bit of signs of, you know, the fatigue of the full season. Jose Brios goes six innings. He gives up the two solo bombs. Uh, he comes out at that point after 84 pitches. Um, I'm, I'm guessing from the way you had made that comment earlier, you're cool with that decision. You know, you think these guys are starting to, to wear it a little bit. Um, do, you, do you think that that is a, a part of the plan this next little bit? Maybe get guys out a little earlier because you have the odd off day, but not enough to really buy guys a ton of extra rest. And, and too many of these games are are too important to, you know, give a guy a, a down day or, or a downturn to the rotation. Yeah, because of who was not available yesterday, mm -hmm. I, I don't think John wanted to do that. But because of the way... Jose was looking right. He had better link to, to the, his delivery, which is a big deal. That's why you see him do that after he finishes pitches. He'll hold his throwing hand out front just to remind him, make sure you get it out there. If I get it out there, I repeat it. It looks the same over and over and over again. The slider, the slurve, the curveball, which he's morphed that into three or four different things because he's grinding and he's going to do whatever it takes to make that thing go wherever he wants it to go and make his misses better. I think that's the key thing here, right? This late in the season, because of the grind, you're trying to make sure if you miss, you don't want to throw it down the middle. Because if you throw it down the middle like you threw the changeup, like you threw the, the slurve, the curveball, whatever you want to call that thing, down the middle, even though you're facing the A's, if they're left-handed, they got a decent chance of hitting that hard somewhere. So, yeah, I think it's where John, the, the manager, is. I think this time of the year, because of the weapons and because of how many innings the bullpen has not pitched, it's time to lean on them. Like the, the rotations basically carried you to this point. And you can tell, and by listening and by watching and just by the demeanor walking around the mound will tell you all you need to know about the headspace of where the rotation's at. And now your your bullpen should be well-rested. Like, I know there were some guys yesterday who were down because of the altitude and because of how much they've been pitching the last couple of days, but it's time to lean on them dudes. Like, it's time if you're Pete Walker to go to them guys and go, hey, rotation got us here. You guys are really good. Your ERA is like fourth best in baseball. 
look, I, we're going to lean on you, and we're going to, you know, if we need to use you for six or seven batters, we're going to use you for six or seven batters. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of, you know, you look at what your eyes are telling you, and you look at what you got in the pen. And if, when in doubt, don't be afraid to go out and get him. And I think that's what you saw yesterday. Now, Jimmy Garcia, look, it's, for me, he's got too many. Like, uh, he throws the kitchen sink too much, and, and sometimes he's too predictable, and his secondary pitches aren't great, and that's why you see when he doubles up on breaking balls, right? That's a cement mixing thing, and the party out front in the back leg city is what you're going to. And, and maybe Butler don't throw him a breaking ball anymore. He can hit a breaking ball. <laughs> Try fastballs away. He hits a home run to left field in that park, tip your hat to him. That, for me, will be the adjustment today. But, yeah, I think it's as easy as you got a pin, it's fresh. Use yeah. them. And it's deeper now, too, right? We got the expanded rosters. You got a a Chad Green who's only thrown 12 innings in the minors this year. Obviously, Tommy John, you be a little careful, but you've got the extra arm in there uh, as well. And a length guy in Bowden Francis who you know can give you multiple innings if Mm -hmm. the bullpen ends up tired and you need him more than you expected one day. Uh, Kevin, before I let you go here, the Jays are a half game out. They've got these two against Oakland, three against Kansas City. And next week's series against Texas is going to be a huge one, probably the biggest one of the season. Right this second, half Half a game out. How are you feeling about things? Big picture. Yeah. How about eight wins? Yeah. How about eight? How about eight wins? How about you take the next five against the double A teams and three out of four against the Texas Rangers who are quite frankly trying to back into the playoffs and shouldn't be allowed to do that against a good Jays team. Right, let's right now. If you're as good as they're, they keep preaching to us, they are show us. Win eight games. Eight games out of the – what did you say, nine games? Yeah. There's nine games? Yeah. Eight out of the nine, next nine games. That's doable. You pitch well. You don't beat yourself. Your swing decisions get better because of the bullpen that you have, because of the teams you're facing. Absolutely. And the team, the, the Texas Rangers, you're playing at home. I know your record's better on the road than it is at home, but now it's time. Like, you know, there has to be one of those aha moments of the season where you just sort of – everything starts to come together and – I think for me, because of who you're playing and when you're catching a certain team like the Rangers, eight out of the next nine, am I asking too much, Blake? I don't think I am. I mean, hey, it's if we line this up a couple of weeks ago and looked at this 15-game stretch that included Cleveland and Washington and what the win-loss record probably needed to be, it it probably would have been whatever they've done so far plus eight and one because they haven't they just haven't won as many of these games as they should. And I'll tell you what, it's going to be easier to get things going and build momentum against Ken Waldachuk and J.P. Sears than it is to get it going against the Texas Rangers yeah. uh, or even I think the Sunday game against Kansas City is shaping up to be Cole Raggins right now. So. Uh, yeah. You know, it's better to get it uh, get it going now. Kevin Barker, thanks so much for taking the time yeah. out, man. Yeah, absolutely. Two two things. If yeah, you're an organization, don't, don't overthink it and swing decisions. You do those two things because you have a lot of talent. You're going to win a bunch of games. Yeah, I appreciate it, Kevin. And, and yeah, don't don't overthink it against Oakland, Kansas City. Just go out there and win. Thanks so much for taking absolutely. the time this morning. Have a good day. Kevin Barker of Blair and Barker. You can catch them five to seven. You can also catch them for, uh, I was going to say for Jay's talk post game, but it's a West coast game. So I believe it's a show Ali night. I believe he'll have you for Jay's talk pregame nine to nine 30, nine 40 first pitch. And then show Ali will have the, uh, Jay's talk after dark for you, but Blair and Barker in their five to seven slot. Um, we want to hear from you. We're going to do some mailbag stuff in this next segment after the break. So send us your text five ninety five ninety. whether it's riffing off, any of Kevin's points there, your thoughts on 
I don't know if I refer to it as the weekend still. I'm I'm not used to having a holiday Monday off, so I'm out of sorts on what to call it. But yeah, the weekend, they take three or four and none of them looked uh, super encouraging, but you got the wins. Are you cool with that? Kevin Biggio said after the game that, you know, there's something to finding ways to win no matter what. And you'd prefer that to be, I mean, you'd prefer to just be beating up on bad teams or, or doing the learning how to win thing against good teams, but you can only play who's in front of you. And at least they're coming away with some of those. Does that make you feel good? Does it not make you feel good that they, they need to do it here? A um, couple of updates before we take that break and take your texts, the five ninety five ninety as well. So Kevin and I touched on a, a couple of those things there a little bit. Jays have four guys on the IL right now. Uh, Matt Chapman is still, not hitting or fielding as of yesterday, just strengthening work. Uh, the swelling is down, but he told Arden Swelling that it's still a little, or Hazel May, I believe, um, that it's still a little hard to make a fist. So it uh, doesn't sound like a, a Chapman thing is imminent. You'd probably want him getting swinging, swinging a bat and doing some fielding. Um, so maybe not imminent there. Bo Bichette, however, was running at almost 100% doing sprints on the weekend. He had a scheduled off day yesterday. He sounds much closer. Friday's game is the earliest he could be activated. I think even if it's not Friday, you would love, love to get Bobachette and or Matt Chapman a game or two in against Kansas City so that they're not dropped right back in into such a huge series against Texas. But either way, those guys are, are going to figure back in once they're healthy. I, I don't know that you do a rehab assignment for either of them. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But Bobachette sounds, at least as of yesterday's updates, a little bit closer than Matt Chapman. Uh, Eric Swanson scheduled to throw a bullpen today. In Toronto, the talk when he initially hit the IL was that he was not expected to miss significant time. So that sounds on track there. And then Danny Jansen is flying tomorrow, Wednesday, to see a finger specialist in Pennsylvania, after which we should have a clear timeline on him. The other uh, injury or illness is Brendan Belt, who was scratched from Sunday's game as that back tightness continues to bother him. It cost him two games last week as well. Uh, he was out yesterday with a stomach bug and was away from the team. Um, Alec Manoa is the other name of note that we don't really know. And we keep checking the box scores and the probable pitchers and he's just not there. Well, Ben Nicholson Smith providing the update that um, the Bisons have placed Alec Manoa on the temporarily inactive list. Um, that is something where if a minor league player is away from a team for a few days because of a personal matter, travel to games, et cetera, and is not placed on the IL, he can be placed on the temporary inactive list. Um, ben Nicholson Smith also providing that he is with AAA Buffalo, but this frees up a roster spot as Manoa builds back up. So that sounds to me like a bit of a minor league roster loophole where, you know, similar to the developmental list that Ricky Tiedemann hit at one point last year when he wasn't actually hurt. Um, there's just some flexibility there for minor league teams, but it continues to be a bit of an oddity that Alec Manoa has been optioned to AAA and still isn't pitching. And it's been a couple weeks and Hey, the Jays starters are looking tired. And what if you have a doubleheader day or what if you need a spot start or something like that? Uh, Bowden Francis, Mitch White, you guys are up. Mitch White had another good start on the weekend. I don't think uh, I'm not going to try to give you the the Mitch White sales pitch, but uh, yeah, that's where you're at in starting pitching depth if uh, if Alec Manoa isn't throwing down there for you. Uh, we're going to take a break. Those are your updates. It's Chris Bassett against Ken Waldachuk tonight at 940. Uh, afternoon game tomorrow, 337. First pitch, Hyunjin Ryu against JP Sears. So a uh, fun series. Feels like a quick turnaround with the holiday Monday and an afternoon game Monday and Wednesday. Uh, Jay's off Thursday and then head into that Royal Series.
They head into tonight's game, half a game back of a playoff spot. How are you feeling about it? Texas at 590-590 will open up the mailbag uh, after the break as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. We are taking your Texas segment in the text line. You can text them to 590-590. Some of you guys did not spend the weekend getting less unhinged. You did not hinge up. Still some unhinged stuff in there. Um, Also, put your name and location so we can can shout you out. Uh, First question is not signed, but it is a relevant question as we did the updates before the break there. The one name I didn't mention was Ricky Tiedemann. This person asks, will we see Ricky Tiedemann on the Blue Jays this year? Uh, Great arm to have. For the playoff push, uh, my answer to that one would be almost certainly not at this point. Um, They need to focus and are focused on, given all the time he's missed, they got to build his innings up. They got to build his his arm back up. Um, I'd imagine he's headed to Arizona Fall League when the double A season ends. He's only thrown 33 and a third innings this year. So while he is... um, you know, uh, obviously an exciting and electric arm. First of all, he's not on the 40 man, so he wouldn't be playoff eligible uh, barring someone getting injured in the playoffs uh, anyway. Um, yes, he could probably help you down the stretch here, but right now they need to kind of focus on, they don't have to, they could prioritize the right now for, you know, three, four innings. He could work out of the bullpen, uh, but right now they're focused more on the long term with Tiedemann, especially after he missed uh, pretty much all of May, June, July with that biceps injury. He did have another start on the weekend through three shutout innings, allowed a hit in two walks, struck out five. So if you look over his last two starts down there now, uh, six and two thirds innings with 16 strikeouts. Pretty good. He is, uh, there is no question about the quality of the stuff there. It's just a matter of how do you build him back to a spot where, you know, not only is he stretched out fully as a starter next year, but he could potentially help your major league club next season. Uh, so I don't think we see it this year, but uh, we will see it at some point in the next couple of years. Of course. Um, Brandon in Woodstock uh, says, I don't know what the right answer is, but John Schneider keeps not being the right one. Obviously best case scenario is that the players play. So there are no bad options, but when that doesn't happen, the manager matters. Um, yeah. I mean, look, there have been some decisions of late that I haven't particularly Agreed with. I can think of three off the top of my head in the last two weeks. Uh, I think what you said there is probably the more important point in that, you know, I can I can have a really hard time with Kevin Biggio bunting with a runner on second, but that game should have been won by that point. Uh, I can have a hard time with, you know, uh, pinch running for David Schneider and then not pinch running for Alejandro Kirk. And the way that that played out with Kirk getting thrown at home. But the reality is they also had the bases loaded with nobody out for two, three, four in the order in that game and so on. You can kind of keep going down the list like that where, yeah, there was some stuff I didn't love in yesterday's game as well. Probably shouldn't be tied with the Oakland A's and have not got to Luis Medina or the A's bullpen until the 10th inning. Um, So, you know, I, I agree. There have been some nits to pick. 
of late, but yeah, I think the the bigger part, at least for right now, because the honest answer is that a change would not happen at this point in the season anyway. Um, not to say we don't evaluate the manager and talk about these decisions still. That's like 40% of the job as a radio host is second-guessing the coaches. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing right now is every one of those micro decisions that I've had an issue with came in games where they absolutely should have won the game regardless. So um, it, it can be a bit of a tough one. Eric from Red Deer says the season's coming down to this four game series against Texas. Uh, the games against Oakland and KC have to be wins and they have to go three or four against Texas. Just like uh, Kevin Barker just told us um, says, I like our chances against Texas though. Bruce Bochy has uh, no options in the bullpen. Um, yeah, it's uh you, you do want to attack that bullpen. It's going to be important to get into that bullpen pretty quickly, given the lack of options there, given how much that group has struggled. Uh, I think, you know, if we're looking back to the waiver craziness of last week, probably the thing you're happiest about as the blue Jays is that Matt Moore and Reynaldo Lopez did not make their way to Texas in the waiver process. It sounds like they weren't even close to making their way to Texas where Cleveland picked up a couple of arms and we heard, well, yeah, Miami had claims in on them too. Not entirely surprising there, but yeah, Texas's bullpen is, uh, is not very good. And part of the, you know, reason you want to make good swing decisions and want to work good at bats and do damage in these situations. Even if you, you know, the A's are a terrible example, but let's say yesterday, the fact that you didn't get to Luis Medina until the fifth inning, and then you didn't get to a, a pretty shaky bullpen. You, you weren't able to hit them much that against Oakland, you can trust that eventually the game's going to go on long enough and you, you'll get some matchup and you'll be able to hit against that team. But Imagine if you had got to Luis Medina the second time through the order instead of the third time through the order, and you were an extra arm into the A's bullpen, and you got to that guy a little earlier, and today Oakland has a more banged-up bullpen. You've seen more of the arms. That stuff cascades, and in a four-game set against Texas with a bullpen as bad as they are, um, they're also potentially going to carry six starters for a little bit here. Nate Uvalde is expected to come off the IL today. We don't know the corresponding move, but on paper, it looks like they could run a six man rotation, which would shorten the bullpen a little bit. Anyway, all that is to say, yeah, Max Scherzer's a tough guy. John Gray, Andrew Heaney. Those are, those are tough matchups. We'll, we'll see who ends up pitching in that series, but you got to get to those guys early so that you can chip away at what has been one of the shakiest bullpens in all of baseball. Uh, Kevin from Toronto asks who gets sent down when Bo and Chapman come back. Mason McCoy is the obvious one, but who's next? Uh, I want all three of the AAA guys, being Ernie Clement, Spencer Horwitz, and David Schneider, uh, to stay. That's a really good question, Kevin. I think, yeah, you're right that Mason McCoy is the obvious one. Let's say Bo Bichette's back Friday. You know, that's a straightforward move. From there, I, I really don't know what you do because Ernie Clement's been playing every... I mean, I know what they do. I think my lean would be that they send Spencer Horwitz back down because that's kind of what they've told us with their bench usage over the course of the year. Maybe that's changed. Maybe they've seen the value of having these offensive bats off the bench, the contact profile from Spencer Horwitz that John Schneider's talked about um, wanting, um, you know, always a potential that, Hey, someone else hits the IL or something like that. Um, I don't know. It, a lot of the fringe guys are playing well while the main guys aren't. It's a, it's a tough question. I, I think right now it would probably be, be between Horwitz and Clement. Um, that's that sucks for both of those guys. And both of those guys have, have come through really well for you. Um, Santiago Espinal is, you know, on merit last week of hitting aside, probably the guy who should go down 
on Merritt again, the defense hasn't been quite to the level we've expected that the offense, even against lefties hasn't been great this year, but he started to heat up and, and he started to sharpen up the defense of late. So um, there are tough decisions there. And I'll be honest, I, I really do think the lineup these next two days could tip their hand a little bit. They're facing a lefty. What does that look like in terms of who starts and who starts where? What does that look like in terms of, hey, if Belt and Horwitz are both coming off the bench, how are they used as pinch hitters? Does John Schneider's game management, you know, tell you that Spencer Horwitz is redundant because Brandon Belt is in that role and starting against righties and the pinch hitter when a lefty starts? Uh, it's tough to see. None of neither of those trio deserve it. Uh, it's a it's a tough spot to be in for sure. So it's a great question, Kevin, and, and one will continue. Uh, to keep an eye on Kevin from Toronto also asks about Spencer Horowitz playing a couple games in a row at first base. Uh, is that related to Vladdy's defense? I got a question on Twitter as well uh, from James who asked just, Hey, what's the deal with Vlad's defensive metrics being like near or, or at the bottom of the league at first base? I mean, that it's straightforward. He hasn't been good defensively. And look last year when he won a gold glove, the metrics did not agree with that. They did not say that Vlad was an elite first baseman. Um, certainly the ones that liked him, it was not unanimous. Uh, I think that, hey, having the splits and having a big arm and having some good highlights, that that goes a long way in something like gold glove for first base because I don't know that anyone's paying that close attention to first base defense. And honestly, the gap between you know best first base defense and worst first base defense is smaller than at any other position, which is why we say it's the, you know, the lowest spot on the defensive spectrum. Everyone can play first base uh, in a pinch. So, you know, with Vlad, the, there is potentially something underneath here where his sprint speed is also down and his base running's down. And obviously the offense is down. Maybe there's something underlying that is, chipping into all of these things um, more likely though, he probably got a little bit overrated last year at first base because of, because of some of the highlights, because of some of the fun stuff he does over there. When in reality, um, you know, he's, he's kind of just a guy there, which is disappointing because uh, he was a third baseman, not that long ago. He should be a good first baseman uh, just for greater context there, by the way, if you look at, Fangraph's defensive metrics. Um, they graded him as a negative at first base in 2022 and 2021 to basically the same extent. He has been even worse this year, uh, but they still graded him as a, a pretty big negative last year. Uh, and then in terms of if you prefer StatCast's metric, well, they had him as bad, not awful the last two years. And now he is, you know, arguably the worst uh, first baseman in the league to, by their defensive metrics. So that just gives you a couple different looks at, at first base defense. Not that any of those stats are, you know, catch-alls, but I think all of it backs up our, our eye test. Um, Brandon in London says, why is there so little info released on Manoa? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine, man. It, it tells me that there's maybe some disagreement here between player and team on what the plan is and what the plan should be. If there was an injury underlying it, Alec Manoa would be on the IL right now because his agent and the union would say, look, he's injured. And on the IL, he continues to accrue service time and make his major league salary. If he was injured, his camp would be pushing for him to be on the IL, not option to Buffalo um, for financial and, you know, long-term financial reasons. So why there's so little info, I don't know. And, and honestly, the point I'm at with it is if this was going to be the plan, I think they would have sent him to the complex league. I think they would have optioned him down there again and at least no media around and at least no one's looking at the probable pitchers every day. You could say, well, he's down at the complex and he's working on stuff and we're doing the intake bullpen and the, 
you know, the pitching lab and stuff like that, him being sent to triple a Buffalo to me said they expect to be able to call on him, call on him if needed at some point down the stretch and him not pitching yet suggests, well, that plan is not going uh, as planned. So I don't really know uh, what to do with that. I, I wish I had a better answer for you, but there is a, an unknown unknown here in that something is going on that is not being properly communicated or fully communicated. They probably have the reasons for that, but yeah, uh, there is a, a missing variable here to some degree. Uh, Nate in Abbotsford asks if Ryu is on an innings limit for the remainder of the year. Or is he free and clear to pitch as much as needed? Uh, he's clear. He's all good. Uh, they'll probably be careful with pitch counts and things like that as they, as they have been, they haven't let him go, you know, too, too deep. They've taken him out at times when uh, it looks like he could go another inning. He's 36 years old. He's heading into free agency. I'd imagine his camp wouldn't want him to be on an innings limit either because he needs to show teams that he can pitch. And I can't imagine with what we know about Hyunjin Ryu that he would be very happy uh, sitting down in a playoff race. But yeah, they're going to use these off days that they have Thursday and then again next week to give guys an extra piece of rest kind of keep maybe keep guys on turn and just have them with the one extra day of rest. It's a concern for everyone. Um, I think with Ryu, you're thrilled that he's been able to give you five innings, five of the six times he's gone out. And uh, yeah, he's been pitch efficient with that enough where it hasn't really been a question. And you could even make a case for him coming back out to the sixth. It's been awesome. Uh, Five and dive is uh, not always a complaint or a, a dig at a guy. Uh, no name says sit Vladdy and play Belter Horwitz 60 day Chapman. Don't want him on the field again this year. All right, man. Cool. Really, really good text. Really good comment. Uh, really helpful to the discussion. Hey, why don't they do all these things that they would never even consider? Uh, great stuff. Um, no name says, I think the Jays need to go on their first big winning streak of the year. If there was ever a time for an eight game winning streak, it would be now. And they could put the pressure on their fellow contenders. Yeah. I'm with you, man. This is uh look, I've said this before and it's an oversimplification but it really does feel true that any team that makes the playoffs and feels like any level of a threat at some point during that season, that team has looked like the best team in baseball for a week, for two weeks, for a month, whatever. Last year's Phillies team that barely scraped in. Yeah, there was a stretch of time where they looked like the most unbeatable team in baseball. The Braves, certainly. They spent the whole season doing it. The Dodgers just came off like a three-week stretch where they beat the brakes off everyone. Tampa and Texas and Baltimore have all had stretches where they looked like the very best team in baseball. That doesn't have to happen. You can win a World Series without ever going on a 10-game win streak or you know winning 15 of 18 or something like that. But most of those teams do do it at some point. So, I don't know. You've got Oakland and Kansas City. Now is certainly the time. And, and look, to be completely honest, you're not going to feel, you, you know, you're not going to be celebrating and patting yourself on the back. Oh, my God, you, you took three games off of Oakland and three off Kansas City and two off of Colorado. That's not to say that this would mean that they're a playoff contender, but you got to get there first. And even just the ability to play good baseball with that consistency uh, would feel different for this team. And I think that's uh, different in an important way. Steven or Stefan uh, in Fox trap asks if Chapman comes back, but still struggles like he has since may, uh, would you sit him for any of the Bison's bunch? I don't know that I would sit him regularly. The, the Jays have shown us even when Matt Chapman is struggling at the plate, they value his defense so much. They have dropped him in the order, hit him in the bottom third of the order for long stretches of time. I think 
getting him extra off days, whether that's as finger maintenance or to get other guys a look, I, I think that's important as well. Um, we'll have to see because if, if he comes back and it looks like, you know, the fingers still laboring him at the plate, uh, I don't know what you do with that. I, I haven't seen the scans on his fingers or anything like that. But if this is something that still lingers after 10 days down or something like that, yeah, you have to consider, um, you know, what he can contribute to you. Uh, I just don't think he's coming back to be a bench piece. I think they'll probably deem if he's healthy, he's, you know, at least a five day a week kind of player. Uh, more question. Oh, Jeremy from Toronto. This is a really good one. Uh, any chance when Bo and Chapman are back that they send down Heineman and Varsho is the backup catcher. Buddy, I want to see it. I don't, I know that that position is very difficult defensively and there is a huge mental and preparation toll with catching and pitching staff you haven't caught before. And I know the Varsha only did it a bit in camp and has only taken the odd practice rep this year. But when the Blue Jays acquired Dalton Varsho, part of the draw was this guy is your third catcher or can be your third catcher. Now, that doesn't mean he is your backup catcher when someone gets hurt. But what it did mean, we thought, was if Alejandro Kirk DHs a day and Danny Jansen's the catcher and you need a pinch run for Danny Jansen, well, hey, you've got Varsho you can turn to if you don't want to lose the DH. They haven't done that a single time. And I would like to see it. I don't want to see Dalton Varsho necessarily starting games at catcher in big game, like against in that Texas series or whatever. But I, I do wonder if they're, they've been a little too cautious with it or, or just too hesitant to go to it in an emergency situation. Um, I don't know. I think if at this point, 138 games in or whatever it is, they haven't done it yet. Maybe we're not going to, but Jeremy, I'll tell you what, we'll ask Keegan Matheson about it in the next segment, see what he thinks, because that is supposed to be part of the value with Varsho. Um, I don't think they would go as far as to option Heineman down and carry Varsho as the true backup catcher. That's just too risky, I think, and they don't want to put that load on top of Varsho and, and Kirk. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, Tyler Heineman is not a terrific bat. He has a good reputation defensively, but he got ran on a little bit on the weekend too. I don't know. You have to at least explore what scenarios you might use Dalton Varsho behind the plate. And even if they're emergency late game scenarios. So fun question, Jeremy, uh, I don't think they're going to run with just one true catcher on the roster, but fun to play through the scenarios where maybe they would uh, use Varsho in that spot. Uh, Karen, Carson, sorry. And Markham says, uh, seeing the bright sides of this last run of games, uh, it felt like earlier in the year, they'd find ways to lose games like yesterday. That's a fair perspective, and that kind of echoes what Kevin Biggio said after the game, that this team's trying to build a culture of finding ways to win no matter what. I'm still of the mind. I'd rather, you know, beat the brakes off these teams, have games like that 7 nothing victory the other day where, or, or the, the day Bowden Francis got a three-inning save, which, yes, I'm hanging on to because I love those. Um, yeah, I think you'd prefer to be just hammering these teams, but better to be winning these games than losing them, sure, and and certainly executing better in those spots, even if there's a huge quality of competition caveat there, executing a little better in those spots than earlier in the season, uh, particularly hitting with runners in scoring position, even though it doesn't always feel that way. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk to Keegan Matheson, who is fresh from Denver, Colorado. He was out at Coors Field. Very curious to hear what he thought of that. Uh, he is an opinionated person when it comes to ballparks and cities on the road, a connoisseur of the traveling part of the beat Keegan Matheson of bluejays.com of MLB.com. He joins us next when Jays talk plus continues on the sports radio network and sports at 360. Big opinions and in-depth conversations covering the Leafs, Jays, Raptors, and the NFL. The JD Bunkins podcast. 
Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Our next guest was uh, shopping at an interesting restaurant on the weekend. We'll say that. He was down in Denver, Colorado. He was at Coors Field for Jay's Rockies. Keegan Matheson of BlueJays.com of MLB.com joins us now. Keegan, you got to refresh me. What was the sandwich called? A blunt? A blunt at the fine restaurant called Chiba Hut, I, I believe. So the the large sandwich, a 12-inch, you don't say foot long, it's called a blunt. The 8-inch <laughs> was, I believe, a pinner, and a, a small one was a nugget. I love Denver, let me tell you. That is one of the better road trips in baseball. And uh, for all of the cities that baseball takes me that I uh, do not love necessarily, Denver made up for it. What a place. So, you know, thin air, lots of hiking, some interesting restaurants, stuff like that. Uh, you come out of that trip with a little bit better an understanding of Kevin Gosman, the dude, having grown up there and, you know, his formative pitching years around that area? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just talking to the people around Denver and Colorado, it's, uh, you see a lot of Gosman. Uh, in everybody so it's uh, it makes a little more sense he was pretty excited to, to hear that I had gone to that sandwich shop it was uh right next to the hotel I'm not usually a man who ventures out <laughs> a lot on the road I think a lot of people uh, my my close friends especially and a lot of my close friends do not understand baseball it's by design it's why I love them and when I'm on the road I, I think they envision me doing big touristy things really seeing the world no, goodness no. I am going to the hotel. I am getting lunch somewhere within a block of the hotel, and I'm going to a ballpark. So it's uh, it's a limited view I get of these cities, but when it hits, oh, baby, it hits. Denver was awesome. So the other thing you get to do on these road trips sometimes is capture and write about really special moments. And I know that you, Spencer Horwitz is a guy you've been high on uh, throughout his recent minor league career. And he had the moment with the Blue Jays a little earlier in the year where he came up, gets his first major league hit, kind of goes right back down. This weekend, he hits his first career uh, major league home run. That becomes a bit of a, a family affair. Uh, how special was it for you to get to cover that? And could you tell tell us a little bit more about that piece you wrote uh, about Spencer Horwitz, his brother Ben, and why that moment was so big for the two of them together? Yeah, that was uh, one of those moments that kind of uh, freshens you up and uh, reminds you how cool this can be. Uh, I, I think this game and the sport and how it works. But uh, Spencer saying afterwards, that his brother Ben was there, his older brother, and speaking just about how much he loves him. He said, this guy's my BP thrower. He's my best friend. He's my everything. And he was there. So Spencer was able to get, give him the home run ball. Uh, thankfully, it went into the Rockies bullpen. So they didn't need to trade anything for it. Uh, I don't know if a Spencer Horwitz sign back is getting you a ball at this point. <laughs> I think Spencer would have had to get Vladdy to sign a bat if that were the case, but uh, he was able to get that ball back. And uh, even at this point of the year in a postseason race, it's, uh, it's refreshing to, to hear a story, to see a guy light up like that, to, just to see the light in Spencer Horwitz's eyes after that game, because this is game 130, 500 and something, whatever it is, you get worn out. So moments like that are, are pretty special to be around and uh, 
a great one for Spencer Horwitz, who, who, like a lot of these Buffalo guys, was not a high pick, not a blue chip guy, but is making it work. So you will never hit a major league home run, Keegan. Uh, sorry to phrase okay. it that way, but but you okay. won't. But Listen, let let's say let's, let's play out the scenario where you know um, <laughs> at the end of the season you've blown the roof off the hot dog scandal. And the BBWAA, after obviously they would have had to remove Shy since he's complicit in the fake hot dog numbers, but the BBWAA gives you, you know, the, the game ball for your, your story of the year, for your great reporting. Who do you give your writer's version of first home run ball to? Wow, this is my dream. Doing something that even, like, gets me booted from the BBWAA. <laughs> and I need to start my own kind of, like, I'm thinking I'm Hulk Hogan wearing the NWO shirt coming in. Who does my game ball go to? You know what? In the rain delay the other day, people were asking me about how I got into baseball, and I said my mother was a big part of that. And growing up, my mom was a big baseball fan. And in Little League, of course, they would tell you that you tied every single game. <laughs> and I'd be thinking, no, this is ridiculous. And my mother didn't do this in a way where she was upset about participation trophies or anything. She just knew that I was uh, a bit too uh, sharp of a kid. I was one of those smart kids that didn't talk much, and I knew that it wasn't a tie. So she would keep scoring the inside of her cigarette package, and she'd say, no, no, you lost 11-2. But during that, those two runs were probably huge dingers from me. And back in the day, when I hit a home run, we got to go down the road to the Dairy Queen, just below the Kinsman baseball field in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. So there was a lot of Dairy Queen in those days. Unfortunately, a couple years later, we moved over to the bigger field, which exposed my athleticism. I was a DH from the day I was born. But man, oh, man, did I eat good for a few years there. Yeah, that's uh, hey, that's a great way to reward it. I would have been, you know, maybe this says a lot about me as a as a kid. I would have been trying to trade, you know, game ball for game sig, maybe if I if I hit the home run instead <laughs> of the instead of the DQ there. Okay, so back to Spencer Horowitz. Um, obviously, a very very touching moment between him and his brother. Always cool anytime a guy ropes his first major league home run. He's also contributed in a couple of games here. Was only used as a as a pinch hitter in the opener against Colorado. Has three hits, including a ho the home run and a walk as well uh, in the game on Sunday. And then yesterday gets another hit. If I, if I have my days correct in my head, I'm still uh, a little unsure of which day it is. And then gets hit by a pitch as well. So he's on base a couple times. You know, we're talking the tiniest of samples, but an OPS over a thousand over his first six major league appearances. It's six major league appearances. We're not going too crazy, but Keegan Spencer Horwitz is a guy you've been high on for a long time and someone who on this show before the roster calls became official, you advocated for getting that 28 spot because of the bat to ball skill, because of the offensive profile. Um, what do you think Spencer Horwitz has shown in these couple games? And what is his path to playing time? The, this next little bit here, I'm thinking ahead a little bit with a lefty on the mound today, lefty on the mound tomorrow, maybe some activations on the weekend as good as he's been, could get a little tight here. I, I think he has shown exactly who he is which is one heck of a thing to do when you're getting called up and not getting everyday reps is just looking like yourself and being good at what you are good at and for Spencer Horwitz that is working really good at bats he has a 450 on base percentage in AAA which is ridiculous even with some of those boosted numbers in AAA and with Horwitz I've been high on him only because the people who I talk to who are smarter than me are high on him. It's, 
I think Spencer Horwitz, even going to David Schneider is another example, but Horwitz is a good example of why I, I guess I try to use the word prospect reporting instead of prospect writing, I guess is the um, annoying inside journalism thing that nobody else cares about. But it's when prospects are covered, there's a lot of, I think, or this, look out for this guy. I'm high on this guy. Okay. I don't think people should care much what I think about a guy. It's, that's when I talk to people in the organization and around the team, minor league coaches, they love the guy. That's what matters. And Spencer Horowitz has a lot of fans in this organization, just like David Schneider did. David Schneider was a fan favorite and a coach's favorite, which matters a lot at every level. Coaches loved the dude. Spencer Horowitz gets a lot of that same talk. And when you look over these next few weeks, Blake, I think he still gets – maybe a few more chances than I even thought on September 1. I thought maybe he's a bench bat, the odd A-B. I think he gets some starts now. And long-term, when you're looking at Brandon Belt as a free agent who slides in, Spencer Horowitz makes a lot of sense as a player and the side we don't love talking about, the money side. Mm. Cheap. That's a cheap solution that allows you to spend money elsewhere. He makes a ton of sense in this lineup. I love the at-bats he puts together. And I think it transfers. I think he can be that kind of 370, maybe plus OBP guy in the big leagues. Yeah, it's certainly not how you want to come about getting a look like this, but you are getting a little bit of a window with Belt having been unavailable for a couple of days and Chapman on the IL uh, and a handful of lefties uh, lefty starting against you where one of maybe a Kevin Kiermeyer's out that there. So you're getting a bit of a look at, at what things could look like next year. Obviously the Jays will have some flexibility to, to add as well, but a bit of an internal competition here, or at least guys making an early case for 2024. Of course, you know, Addison Barger or Elvis Martinez types will be a little more ready by then. And maybe in the conversation as well, but never bad to get an early uh, opening argument if you're Spencer Horwitz or David Schneider or, or Ernie Clement. Um, Keegan, all three of those guys have been contributing a lot. They were monster factors in Sunday's game. You mentioned you are Hulk Hogan in the NWO. I mean, those guys are the big three in, in that game uh, as well. It was just a matter of who's the third man, and Spencer Horwitz comes up to be that third man. Um, but those three guys... I mean, look, I don't want to frame it as a negative. It's obviously very, very positive that they're coming in and contributing, especially when guys are out. At some point, those guys are going to shift back to bench roles because we expect Bobachet back this weekend, Matt Chapman back at some point. Um, how do you see that side of things shaking out? There, there's the very obvious that, you know, Mason McCoy will be the first guy down when Bobachet's back, but who goes down when Matt Chapman is back and who goes back to being a pure bench piece. Not immediately clear here. couple days for guys to still make their cases with performance. But what do you, I guess, just make of, you know, three AAA call-ups doing so much for this team right now and potentially heading toward a week from now not having big roles in the biggest series of the season? It saved them, absolutely. And it's not what anyone expected uh, by any means. So even when these names were called up, even when you look at what they've done in AAA, it, Thankfully for some of these players, this has come at a point where they've gotten opportunities to get in there a bit regularly. Ernie Clement seeing regular, Spencer Horowitz getting a couple of games recently, and you know David Schneider with his run. You, you need those reps you know, playing every day if you are going to come up. They've gotten a bit of that, and when Bo is healthy, when Matt Chapman is healthy, this gets kind of crowded, like you say, Blake, which is great for the Blue Jays. Crowded is a good thing if you're trying to select between these guys. 
Now, even a few weeks back, a couple weeks back, Santiago Espinal was not playing well. He was in that conversation. Where's his role? But he's looked a little bit better lately. So this is a good spot for the Blue Jays to be in. And when they start to craft that bench for the stretch run, when you have Bo, when you have Matt Chapman back, we'll see what the latest update on him is out of Oakland. But that's when you can start to specialize a little bit more off of the bench. Now, in a perfect world, maybe you have just a complete burner off the bench. You have a power guy off the bench. Doesn't line up as naturally right now for the Blue Jays, but you can still mix and match, play those matchups, and really try to maximize what you're doing off the bench. Whereas right now, they're trying to scramble, stay above water. It's a little ugly. They're making it work, but it's not your dream <laughs> as a manager, what what they're having to do right now. So I think they can get back closer to playing the brand of baseball they want to instead of the type of baseball they have to right now, which is kind of scratch and claw. So can any of those guys play catcher? <laughs> In a perfect world, they all could. My goodness. And uh, ideally, one of them knows some magic to cure a bone <laughs> in Danny Jansen's finger. That would be the... Uh, the ideal, or they know how to wrap Danny Jansen in armor and bubble wrap or something for next year. What a year. Yeah, uh, Tyler Heideman does know magic from what we gather, but I don't think he has a fix a fractured finger magic. We'll hear more about Danny Jansen later in the week. He's headed to a finger specialist Wednesday in Pennsylvania. Um, look, he had a similar injury to this last year, and you look around at catchers and fr- finger fractures and stuff like that. There are the odd guy who make it back on a you know three to four week kind of timeline, and then a bunch of guys who miss more like six to eight. And we don't know, you know, how bad is the fracture? We know it's below the the knuckle and, and things like that. Um, when you look at the Blue Jays catching situation, there aren't really a lot of options here. Alejandro Kirk is going to play as much as he's physically capable of. Tyler Heineman is not a bat, but a well-liked guy, a, a guy who catches the position well from to, to hear team people and other pitchers say it, even though he was run on a little bit the couple times he's been called up here. Um, what do you make of how this is going to play out? Is it, you know, is, is it two days on, one day off for Kirk? Or are they going to ride him even more than maybe we saw last time Danny Jansen was down just because of how big all of these games are the next little while? I think you push Kirk as hard as you can at this point. Having two catchers all year, and avoiding DHing them a lot should mean that Kirk is fresh. It's September. It's time to win. Figure it out. Play as much as you can. And for Alejandro Kirk, that's a big opportunity. He's looked a little better lately. He is driving the ball, pulling the ball, come up in a few big moments. He's looked much better. Really big opportunity for him at this point of the year. And unless it's a quick turnaround day after a night game, I think you see him in there mostly every day. And Tyler Heineman doesn't bring a ton offensively behind the plate, but relative to the catching position around baseball, this position is not full of 800 OPS guys exactly by any means. Tyler Heineman fits in as long as he manages the staff, keeps that steady on his day. That's enough. That's fine. If he (laughs) takes a walk, a single, takes a ball off the elbow, bonus money, you're happy. But Heineman being able to step in there is good for the Blue Jays to keep that safe, but they need Alejandro Kirk. Kirk is suddenly one of the most important players on this roster, I think, frankly, because if he can get back to who he can be, that's a bat that really changes the lineup. 
So you mentioned the the workload, and this is supposed to be part of the benefit of having two catchers. Alejandro Kirk, it, it felt like it's felt like he's played a lot at times. He's twenty fourth in the majors in innings behind the plate. So obviously he's got some DH days and things like that, and a lot of pinch hitting mixed in there. But twenty fourth in innings behind the plate is not that heavy a load. And if you hey. There's a scenario where in the future where one or both of these guys have to make the case of, hey, I can be an everyday catcher and someone should pay me like one good opportunity here uh, uh, for that. The other potential option beyond Kirk and Heineman, and I'm going to kick at this football again, Keegan, because I want to see it. And because it was part of the value proposition when you acquired him, uh, Dalton Varsho has not caught this year. He did not catch much in spring training. He has, I think once or twice, you know, donned the gear for a practice or something like that. But basically this team has operated as if Dalton Varsho is not an option at catcher, given the weight of these games Given the gap between Varsho and Kirk and Tyler Heineman in terms of offensive profile, um, maybe this is only a late game. You've had to pinch run for Kirk kind of scenario. Is there any path in your eyes to Dalton Varsho spending a little bit of time, even just late game defensive switch everything up behind the dish? I think you have to be open to that in that late game spot. And I, I view it kind of like Vladdy at third base right now. Is he great there? No, but there have been a couple of situations lately where Vladdy at third would have made sense. Uh, like the other day in Colorado, it was going to line up like that if it had gone to extra innings. And I understand uh, not wanting Varsho at catcher through the season. When you have other options, you want to keep him fresh. At the same time, you're not asking the guy to jump out of a building here. You're asking him to play catcher for a couple of innings Yes, there's more wear and tear. Yes, there's a higher injury risk like we've seen with Danny Jansen. At catcher, bad luck can make you miss a month or two. Whereas in the outfield, you don't exactly get a a foul tip off of your fingertip. That's not happening. But that's a, a worry for the middle of the regular season. At this point of the year, if there is a game where it would work out and you need to put him behind the plate for an inning or two, he's proven that he can do that. Is he the best catcher in baseball? No, but he can do it, and he's done it at the major league level. I think that would be a pretty cool one to see, that level of roster management. And again, at this point of the year, it's there's increased risk, but it's nothing that he's never done before. And I think that's really got to be on the table. Just like a Vladdy at third, we've seen Kevin Biggio play shortstop. Get weird with it. <laughs> Yeah, Kevin Biggio played shortstop. I, I was joking around last week that him and Ernie Clement might have a, you know, they both might raise their hand to play catcher because they're both just two positions shy of a, a baseball reference page with every position checked off. Clement needs a center field and catcher. Biggio needs catcher and pitcher. So uh, we'll see how this one shakes out. Couple games left here in this Oakland series and then three against Kansas city Keegan. I I know you've got to win the games. However, you can win them. Kevin Biggio said after last night's game told shy Davidi, Yeah, this is kind of the culture we're aiming for though, to find a way to win no matter what. Having said that it would be nice for all of our cortisone levels and nice for the way the Jays can manage this bullpen and get guys reps and things like that to just beat up on the bad teams a little bit here. Uh, do you do you care either way? Like, do you take anything from how the Blue Jays win these next five games, or is it strictly uh, set it and for like get that W and forget it for you? I still care about how it looks, which I, I know is a it's a bad brain disease to have 
but it's a it's a real chicken or the egg type of thing with expectations and reality for this team. And the big picture example right now is that you know going into this year, I thought the Blue Jays should be competing for the division. Period. That expectation doesn't get to change just because they're not there. And there's been a lot of expectations changed based just on what's happening. And the Blue Jays should be beating up on these teams. They're not good teams at all. I don't remember the last time that I was covering a Blue Jays game and an opposing pitcher came in that made me say, uh-oh, <laughs> that guy might mow through this lineup. No, most of these guys, I'm Googling. I'm looking them up as they run to the mound. Now you have the A's, you have the Royals. This is a ridiculously soft spot on a schedule. And getting this soft spot while Texas and Houston are playing one another, it's such an advantage for the Blue Jays. And yes, a win is a win. 95% of my brain thinks a win is a win. But part of my brain still has a foot in thinking that you have to play way better than this. The Blue Jays are playing to the level of their opponents. This goes back to that Cleveland series, that ugly game that Syndergaard started and was DFA'd after. They should be beating up on these teams 11 to 2, 7 to 1, 8 to nothing, not grinding out close games. So when the Blue Jays do grind out close games, to get back to my point at the start, it's easy to rebrand that as, oh, this is a gritty team that finds ways to win. It's a lot cooler if you just blow them out. It's a lot cooler if you just play to the talent level of this roster and win by eight runs because when the Rangers show up to town, when you play the Rays later this season, playing this exact type of baseball is not going to work. You'll lose. The Blue Jays need to play better than they're playing right now, even though they're winning, which is I know is a tough thing to say. No, it's it's entirely fair. It's a, you need to you need the wins however you can get them for standings purposes, but if you expect them to beat Texas or Tampa Bay or win in the playoffs, they obviously have to play a higher brand of baseball. And to highlight just how big that contrast is, there are five teams in baseball right now who are statistically eliminated from the playoffs, and they are Washington, Colorado, Oakland, Kansas City. Uh, the Mets are the other one, which is its own funny side thing. But yeah, you're playing four of the only teams in a row who literally have nothing left to play for other than uh, the future and making individual cases and stuff like that. And it's going to feel a lot different when Tampa comes to town or Texas comes to town for four next week. Texas, by the way, also has Oakland uh, on this weekend when Toronto's playing Kansas City. So you can't assume you'll be able to make up ground over three with Kansas City. Keegan, before I let you go here, big picture. Jays are half game out. They've got two against Oakland here, three against Kansas City, and then that big four spot against Texas. Half a game is only half a game. The Fangraphs playoff odds are back a little north of 50% for the Blue Jays. How are you feeling about this thing? I would still bet on them making the playoffs right now, just based on schedule, the realities of who is playing who the rest of the way. Now, Big picture in the season, I do not consider a third wildcard spot a huge success based on this team's talent and what they should be capable of, but you get in. It's about getting in every year, and if the Blue Jays do get in, they have that talent. We'll see where it goes. But right now, I do still like their chances. I would personally lean us on the positive side of that 50%. And that stretch run, I think, is going to be so interesting. Those last couple of series where the Yankees probably won't have anything to play for, 
other than the pride of you know, being the Yankees, and then going up against the Rays a couple of times. Those last 10, 12 games are going to be such a ride for this team, and nothing is more important right now than those four games against Texas. I think September 11 to 13 or 14 there. What a series that's going to be. I think that's when it's really going to pick up and people will lock into this as a, a playoff race. But uh, for now, give me yes. When we talk tomorrow, that might be different. But uh, let's, let's capture this moment in time where I'm being an optimist. What a moment it is. A slight optimist, slightly over 50%. <laughs> and look, Keegan, next week's a big series too because we're going to blow the lid off the hot dog thing that Tuesday now that all the records are shattered and no one's... The people will be a little sloppier and a little looser with the lips and less tight with the secrets, I think. Oh, the man behind the curtain is coming down. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Keegan Matheson of BlueJays.com, of MLB.com. Thanks for taking the time out, man. Uh, it's not a, They're not called blunts here in Toronto, but I hope you have a, a lovely lunch ahead of you. <laughs> you got it, brother. Take care. Keegan Matheson, BlueJays.com, MLB.com. Really, really great story over at BlueJays.com on Spencer Horwitz from the weekend. His first career home run, getting to share that with his brother Ben and everything that's meant to them as brothers and kind of a, a tag team in getting Spencer Horwitz to this level, as well as to their entire family. Really great read. Uh, so go check that out at BlueJays.com. Um, Keegan, not in Oakland for this one. Almost nobody is. It's hard to get people uh, to get up in Oakland. Uh, luckily, these are two uh, afternoon games. I'm going to be a mess tomorrow trying to figure out what day and what time it is. 9.40 start tonight. And then Canada uh, in that FIBA World Cup we've been following. They are in the quarterfinals tomorrow morning. If you missed it over the weekend, Canada's punched their ticket to the 2024 Olympics on the men's basketball side. First time they've done that since 2000. So yes, it's been worth it to hear me occasionally shoehorn that into conversations on a Blue Jays show. We're going to take a break right now and then we're going to get back to talking baseball. We're going to take a look at this Texas Rangers team, everything that's going on in the AL West. Uh, we're going to whip around Major League Baseball. Take a little look at the Marlins as well uh, with Chelsea Janes, national baseball reporter for the Washington Post. She joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Toronto Blue Jays trying to catch a Texas Rangers team that has not been very good lately. In addition to losing... 13 to 6 to the Houston Astros yesterday as they continue to battle in the AL West with Seattle there. Uh, they have lost 13 of 17 overall, gone from three and a half games up in that division to one back. Chelsea Janes wrote about the situation that the Texas Rangers find themselves in right now, uh, not only teetering a little bit, but also as one of only three high payroll teams of baseball currently slated to make the playoffs if things ended today. Uh, Chelsea Janes, national baseball reporter for the Washington Post, joins us now. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am. Uh, I'm good. I'm good, I think. I, uh, it's, it's been a weird <laughs> long weekend. I think I'm good. Um, so you wrote last week. In the wild, wild AL West, the Rangers aren't satisfied just to be there. They are now at risk, Chelsea, of not being there whatsoever. I know you wrote about this. It was it was a great piece, some great insight from, from Bruce Bochy and a couple other voices. But what do you make of where this Rangers team is at right now and what has gone on with them these last couple of weeks? Yeah, they're in a rough spot. That, that bullpen has just been horrible. Um, you know, I sort of almost 
to the point of not being able to believe it, I think, you know, and, you know, I think that has done a lot to them. They've also been out without Josh Young and, you know, some of their key bats, but, but mostly it's just been the bullpen being unable to hold a lead at the same time that the Mariners kind of took off. And, and I think that's taken a little bit of a psychological toll too. So they're in a rough spot, but, you know, I think as everyone involved knows these, these three weeks could change a whole lot. So um, if you're the Blue Jays, you just want to keep them downtrodden and, and hope they don't wake up. One of the things, you know, one of the perspectives the Rangers offered in your piece was that, you know, this is kind of where maybe the goal, the the stretch goal was higher, but being in the playoff mix was the next step for this team. They were way out of it at this time last year. Now, organizationally and us zoomed out at a, at a far away level can look at that and be like, okay, well, you're still in a playoff spot and you bank those wins early. You're okay. Do you get the sense that that is more difficult perspective to keep in mind when you're going through the day-to-day and you're them and you have squandered this lead? Like, basically what I'm saying is if you had told them before the season, hey, you're in a wild card spot with three and a half weeks to go and, you know, you've won X number of games, they probably would have been okay with that. But the way it's unfolded, I do wonder if, you know, a sense of urgency maybe turns to a sense of panic in the room at some point. Yeah, I think it's hard to to kind of stave that off. I think that's where somebody like Bruce Bochy really helps just because he can say, hey, look, like if you had told us this a few months ago, we would have been happy. I think the other thing that, that might help them, and, you know, it can't help their bullpen, but it, it can help everybody else, is that for a team that hasn't really been in the mix lately, they have a lot of veterans who have. And, you know, adding Scherzer, adding, you know, with Corey Seager, Simeon, um, you know, Nate Eovaldi, all those guys kind of know what this looks like and aren't going to freak out. So, you know, I think, I think that helps. I think that's one reason it's, you know, if they can even calm down their bullpen a little bit, they, they look like somebody who can turn it around in time to save this. But, you know, I do think that it's a pretty unique situation there because yeah, they, this is kind of what they wanted to do. They wanted to take the next step, but they really invested in taking that next step. They spent a lot of money on a lot of guys who have been there before. So it's kind of hard for them to find consolation. I think in, in just being around. Chelsea, what do you make? You you included the note in your story that right now of the eight highest payroll teams, only three of them would make the playoffs if things ended today. Obviously, the Yankees and the Mets going how they've gone, the Padres going how they've gone, the the Los Angeles Angels, and man, has has their season been weird? Um, I know some of this is just the randomness of a baseball season, um, but what do you make of at a high level that some of the highest spending teams have not spent particularly effectively this year? really fascinating. I've asked a lot of people that question and no one currently seems to have a good answer for it. And I, I think on some level, if you look at the teams involved, like, you know, the Yankees, they aren't that well constructed. You know, the Mets, they weren't that well constructed, you know, betting on two fairly old aces, you know, the Padres, they've got a lot of talent, but it's not necessarily procured in a way that, that is a natural fit, you know, where you have guys playing out of position, you're moving everyone around. So, you know, it's just, I think it's a testament to how smart you have to be with, with who you get. You can't kind of throw these things together over a long season and, and think just talent will win out because ultimately, you know, you need people in the right spots, you need the right kind of depth. Um, you know, I, I think all of those cases are, are very different, but I think it also speaks to the importance of having young young players in those low, you know, arbitration level windows where, you know, they're kind of still new, still energetic, still fresh. Um because all those teams that we mentioned are, are largely a little bit older and, and it's just showed over and over again this year with injuries, with, 
with kind of slowing down or playing under, you know, career norms. Those young players are inexpensive too, which, uh, which helps when you're talking yeah. uh, who has a high, who has a low payroll and is still in the mix there. Um, th- so the team that has benefited from the Texas Rangers teetering as they have the Seattle Mariners. Now a huge part of that is they've been red hot. Uh, and then there are teams like Houston and Toronto who have benefited in the sense that their playoff situation would be a little dicier had Texas not kind of barreled here. Uh, when you look at, that American League, what we'll call it the West and Wild Card race together, because it's basically Seattle, Texas, Houston, and Toronto for three spots. We think. Um, how do you? What is your impression of that race in general? And you know, I know you you haven't been around the Jays much specifically, but where they fit in that mix uh, around these three AL West teams jockeying for position. You know, my very unscientific analysis of that is that you would rather be the team that gets hot in September than the team that got hot in August. You know, I, it's almost like you look at the Mariners and you, I don't know if they're, I mean, they're certainly not as good as they've showed, but you sort of almost don't bet on that to continue. I mean, you can't rule it out. You know, the, the vibes there, whatever, are clearly very good. But I think, you know, if you're the Blue Jays, if you're the Rangers, you kind of look at that and say, okay, like, is there any way they keep this up over the next three weeks? Probably not. Uh, so, you know, as good as they've been, they, they haven't really separated. It's not like they're all of a sudden out of reach. So, you know, I think the Blue Jays, sort of like the Astros, they're kind of, they're around, you know. They're not plummeting like the Rangers. You know, they have every reason to believe they have the talent to, to make the next three weeks count. And I think it's just kind of, it, it, it could go so many different ways, but, but I from my perspective, there's sort of no reason to believe that they can't, uh, you know, hang in there, maybe outlast someone else's losing streak and, and just sneak in. But it's, it's going to be fascinating because those four teams are so different. It's such a different makeup. Um, and obviously the Blue Jays have as much sort of desperation as anyone to like make this year count with, with what they've put into it. And it, it certainly makes a, a four game set between Toronto and Texas next week in Toronto. Uh, a very, very big one. It feels, it feels massive. Yes. Uh, Houston and Seattle have some games left against each other as well. So uh, should make for some fun viewing down the stretch here. A team we expected to be in this race, Chelsea was the Los Angeles angels. They expected to be in the race. They added at the deadline as if they were going to be in the race. They put everyone on waivers the other day as if they are bowing out of the race officially. Um, I know that you wrote about the angels more about, you know, how this impacts Shohei Otani's situation and the, the lack of clarity with Shohei's uh, UCL injury last week, his agent spoke this weekend and then Shohei was pulled from a game with side tightness, um, you know, with the benefit of having heard from his representation now um, has your, read on the Otani UCL situation changed since you wrote that piece last week or the the week prior rather? No, you know, I think the thing that's really striking to me about it and, and was something I tried to write in that is just how much control Shohei Otani has over that franchise. And I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's bad or anything, you know, he wants to as much as anyone, but it's up to him what he does with his arm and, you know, ask Alec Manoa. I'm sure he wouldn't have made the, you know, if it were up to him, he probably wouldn't have had the kind of year he's had, you know, teams don't usually leave these decisions up to players, whether it's health, whether it's, you know, usage, it's it's not usually so up to them. So that is something that's, that's kind of taken, taken me by surprise. But, you know, I think overall that might be an organization that just needs to, to try again, you know, I, I know Trout and Otani, they've got these two stars that, have not held them hostages in any way because anybody would love to have them, but it just seems like there's been this pressure and this inability to build around them that 
um, you know, like this year. It's like you have those guys, so you've got to try. But now that you've tried, you've given up your top prospects and probably set yourself back a couple more years. It's just there's this this cycle that they can't seem to get out of. So, I mean, I don't know a team that's had a worse worst season, you know, morale-wise than they have. And uh, it's kind of a fascinating study in, in how, how badly things can go despite having talent. Like, you have to have depth around them. That's a top-heavy roster, and that has yet to be good enough to even, you know, get them in the playoff next. And because of what they pushed in at the trade deadline, even despite their waiver attempts, uh, most people's reading on the numbers is that they're still slightly above the tax line. So it didn't quite work out. But the question that flows from that, I I guess, Chelsea, and I know you've tweeted about this, are Giolito and Lopez a package deal in free agency? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so, but it's pretty crazy. I mean, I, covered them when they debuted, I think maybe a week or two apart with the nationals in like 16, Um, you know, they've just gone every now four different stops together. Um, They're, you know, they're not like best buds, but they certainly aren't like mortal enemies in any sense. So it's, it's kind of funny, but you know, it's, it's just kind of a weird thing that I've I've talked to Giolito about it. You know, he just kind of thinks it's funny and puzzling how that keeps happening. So yeah, we'll see what happens there, but I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't say they'll choose because of each other, but it's it's kind of funny. And hey, look, whatever team's going to be in the mix for one is probably in a win-now situation and would likely be in yeah. the mix for the other. Uh, Lucas Giolito's yeah. disaster start yesterday uh, aside, he'll yeah. be one of the top names on the free agent market. Chelsea, I want to pivot to the to the National League now. You're a terrific piece at the Washington Post on uh, Kim Ng and the Miami Marlins and where they're at right now. Uh, we also found out, hey, they would have liked to be players for Reynaldo Lopez or Matt Moore or whoever else, but Cleveland decided to grab everyone off the waiver wire with where this Marlins team is um, obviously being in the mix and being in a wild card spot right now is impressive on its own, but given the quick turnaround from the last regime, the the kind of Jeter Mattingly era of that team, what about that turnaround that, that Kimming has orchestrated is most impressive to you? You know, I think it's something that you probably can't see uh, from the outside, but it's, pretty hard I think to come into any organization when it has names like Jeter, Mattingly and and sort of some of their Yankees cohorts and sort of establish yourself as the lone voice and you know establish your authority and I think that's probably even more difficult when you're a woman frankly Um, you know there was always sort of these rumblings like "Uh, is she really in charge are these Yankees guys in charge you know and I'm sure she was in charge but you know that's just sort of how it works like people know who they know and they sort of look around and they see these these faces that they know from the Yankees days and assume they're the ones with the say you know and it's I think she's had to go kind of a long way to quietly really um really kind of assert her, her authority there and what you're seeing is you know a fairly aggressive approach to the major league roster that she's taken and you know she has that luxury because the, the pitching depth there is so good so young they're they're stacked for a long time but um, to me, it's just kind of making that place her own, which which is difficult for anyone to do, and I think particularly difficult for someone like her coming into a situation with with so many sort of people there that that could have overshadowed or, or suppressed her her I don't know her say so. 
And, and there's obviously the, the element you mentioned as well, where she's the first woman general manager of one of the big four North American sports teams, also one of the few uh, executives at a high level of Asian heritage in the major sports leagues yeah. around North America. Now, this isn't fair to Kim Ng to put this on her, but I do wonder if people, you know, kind of have an eye on the success she's having or, or if she were to not have success and use that as sort of a you know, a signpost for where we're at at in at large as a sports industry in terms of, you know, the readiness for, for someone like that to be in a big decision-making position like that, a front-facing one. Again, obviously that's not fair to her for that to be on her shoulders, but in talking to her and in writing that piece, do you get the sense that she feels that and is, you know, holds a place for that or, or is it kind of just eyes on your page and the results will speak for themselves in time? You know, I definitely think it's more the latter. I think the other thing about Kimming is she's just been around. I mean, she worked in the commissioner's office. She worked with the Yankees. Like, everyone kind of knows her. So there's there's sort of a little bit less, even though I just said that she had to kind of prove herself a little bit. Like, there's a little bit less sense that she's kind of coming out of nowhere or is, is something totally different than anyone's ever seen. I mean, she's she's such a known commodity to the other people in you know, those roles, the people she's talking to about jobs, the players that come up and sort of know the resume. So, you know, I, I don't think she's quite as maybe out on a limb as, as some others might be who with, with less qualifications, fewer qualifications. But, um, you know, I definitely am sure she's aware of that pressure. And, you know, she's in a place where, frankly, you know, you're not really expected to win. Um, you know, that's a tough place to win historically. So, you know, I think it's kind of a, a good place to, to sort of, establish yourself but you know there, there's never really going to be that pressure and whoever comes next i mean she's she's the standard you know if she can do it then more people will probably get a chance and if she can it it'll probably be a while before someone does and that's just kind of how these things work but you know i think if you're a, a young assistant gm who's a woman and there aren't many of them you know you're pretty happy with her her paving that way because she's she's so established in the game and yeah, hey, if the Marlins can sneak in here and that's such a quick two-year turnaround or so, they're also just a very fun team to watch day-to-day and root for. So uh, here's hoping they get in. Um, elsewhere in that National League East, Chelsea, I, I know you're a national reporter now, but you were on that Nationals beat for a while, and I, and I know you wrote about this when it happened, but um, Steven Strasburg, going to hang them up. I, I haven't really gotten to talk to someone who's been around the nationals a lot since that happened. Um, can you contextualize for us how much he meant to that franchise and how, if at all, this kind of awkward ending of still years on the contract and the last couple of years, he's been injured and barely played. Where does Steven Strasburg's kind of legacy with this franchise settle in here? You know, he is, Somebody that means, you know, we all every town has him, but will always mean more to DC than than he will sort of anywhere else. I think when he came up in 2012, his debut is is a seminal moment for pretty much an entire city of baseball fans who, you know, they had the Nats for a few years, but they hadn't really contended. There wasn't really, you know, this imminent contention, you know, this group you could root for. And he came up and you were like, oh, okay. All the fans were like, this is, this is the guy, this is going to happen. Like this team is actually going to be good. And it was, and, you know, he really sort of established them as a credible baseball team. And, uh, you know, I think over the years, with them shutting him down in that postseason and, you know, his health ebbing and flowing, you know, he was someone who you felt like 
sort of embodied the, the way the Nationals were. They, you know, they were, they always had the talent. It was just, could you actually put it together? And at the time he put it together, they put it together and they won in 2019. And, um, you know, it's a huge deal here. So I think he's, he is one of the all-time great Nationals. I think health was always everyone's concern. So it's not a huge surprise that it ends this way. But I think he will be remembered as, as just this kind of elite talent who really helped the first generation of Nationals get on the board. And um, for that reason, even though it ends this way, I you know I think he'll always mean a lot to, to the people here and to the franchise. And hey, World Series MVP to cap it off in the last year yeah. where you really yeah, played a, a everyday role is a pretty good way uh, to close it out. I remember that 2012 season. Uh, I actually I went to a game in Washington. It's the only time I've been to that park. And and even like mid season, every the Strasburg start felt like appointment viewing, and there was a real yeah. uh, buzz in that stadium. That must have been uh, a lot of fun. And then yeah, to, to cap it off with the World Series MVP on the way out is pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's what they wanted from him. They, they wanted him to win them a championship, and he did, almost single-handedly at times. So, yeah, a really good ending in that way. Um, and I, I know this ending will be hard. They'll honor him this weekend, but it's not super surprising to anyone. So I think that sort of makes it a little easier. Yeah, I mean, from the day he first came up, they were talking about, well, we got to protect his innings yeah. from injury. And then it turns out yeah. that, hey, you lead the league in innings, win a World Series MVP, your arm falls off, but well worth it. Uh, Chelsea Janes, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Chelsea Janes, national baseball reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, a lot of great stuff over there on this Rangers team and the perspective they're trying to maintain in that clubhouse as they kind of unravel here. Uh, the Miami Marlins side of things, they're in a, hey, you think this AL wild card race is tight? Take a look over uh, on the junior circuit at what that looks like because uh, four teams all within a game for the final spot there. And then the Cubs in the second wild card, not too far out of reach as well, but Arizona Cincinnati tied right now, Miami, just a half game back San Fran, just a game back. It is chaotic over there. And maybe you lean Miami for their story. Maybe you lean Cincinnati because there's the Joey Votto element and they've been so fun. Uh, maybe you lean Arizona because you want to torture yourself watching more good Gabriel Moreno baseball and highlights uh, down the stretch. I can't think of a good, a good reason to, to put your rooting interest behind the giants, but they're in that mix as well. So um, some fun stuff going on over there again, to set up the AL side, the Jays enter play tonight half a game back of that final wild card spot. Houston and Texas right now are a game apart as well. They have two more to go against each other in this series. So could be a dramatic shift in how those wild card standings and AOS standings look by the end of this series, or could be they split the next two and it looks the same as it does now. Either way, one of those teams has to lose the next two days. And if the Toronto Blue Jays can sweep Oakland, then they will catch up at least a game on both of those teams or potentially two more games on one of them, which means, hey, quick math, they could be in a playoff spot tomorrow morning and they could be in a playoff spot when they head into a three-game series with the Kansas City Royals back here in Toronto this weekend. Uh, there are only 24 games left. So every one of these, we are firmly in scoreboard watching season now. Every one of these games matters, even if they're against lesser competition. They matter because they're wins you're supposed to have they matter because if you're playing kansas city this weekend and oh shucks we only took two out of three well texas is playing oakland and they're probably eyeing up a, a three-game sweep there you could lose a game that is tougher to get back as the schedule turns around here so every one of these feels pretty big the toronto blue jays will 
throw Chris Bassett tonight. He has pitched at that Oakland ballpark a lot, knows it well. We'll see which of his 150 pitches he decides to operate with uh, tonight. But I'd imagine that's a guy who has seen what works and what doesn't in that ballpark and at least has a game plan for how to try to neutralize an A's team that isn't very good but does have some power in their bats. Chris Bassett, even uh, in, in Oakland, by the way, had a a bit of a reputation for suppressing home runs while he played there. Again, it's a very big ballpark, but the ball can fly. Sometimes it's it's just an odd park from a ballpark factors perspective. Uh, the giant foul ground also hurting you uh, a little bit. Oakland is going to counter with Ken Waldachuk. He was supposed to start yesterday initially, got bumped to today. Uh, against righties, you're going to see a fastball sweeper changeup, and he'll ditch the changeup for a curveball against any lefties that are in the Blue Jays lineup. That's kind of one of the biggest curiosities in this one. Lefty, Two lefty starters in a row. What do the Blue Jays do lineup-wise? Uh, maybe you give Brandon Belt a, an extra day since it's a lefty anyway. Do you try to get Spencer Horwitz in there? Are you going pretty righty heavy? And, and Schneider and Clement and Espinal and all those guys are mixing in. Do you leave two lefties in the outfield because there's so much ground to cover and you want Kiermaier and Varsho out there? Uh, some interesting decisions for John Schneider to make. Blair and Barker have you five to seven to tee that one up a little bit more. Show Ali will have a pregame for you, nine to nine thirty. He'll also have the Blue Jays talk after dark postgame for you. We'll be back at 10 a.m. tomorrow uh, to digest all of it and set up tomorrow's afternoon start between Hyunjin Ryu and J.P. Sears. Uh, thank you to Keegan Matheson, Kevin Barker, and Chelsea Janes for coming on. Thanks to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. Again, Blair and Barker 5-7, to seven, Show Ali pregame and postgame. It's a 9-40 start tonight. We'll be back tomorrow. Have a terrific Tuesday.